I assume most of you walk into every campus, every location, wondering what it's going to be like when you sit down. We do different things every weekend. And a year ago this weekend, we tried something we've never tried before. And we had different communicators at every location. Because pastor believes that we are not just to meet one generation. We are to meet every generation. And we are to instill, we are to entrust, and we are to encapsulate our young people, our campus pastors, our young staff, and our young volunteers to carry out the gospel, to carry out the truth to our communities. It cannot and it will not stop with Pastor Chris. This weekend at Pellissip, we all get the opportunity to hear from the campus pastors leading at all of our locations. It is going to be an unbelievable weekend all across. We have different communicators at every site. But this weekend at Pellissippi, we're going to have the campus pastors speak to us. The guys that are doing it. The guys that are out there. The guys that are at our locations. And once Farragut is launched, it'll be the first time Pellissippi and Faith Promise is a major shift. There will be more people watching video. There will be more people worshiping via multi-site than at our Pellissippi location. And that is going to be an unbelievable thing because that is our vision. So please help me bring to the stage my friend and our Blunt County campus pastor, Matthew Grimes. Matt Grimes. Thanks, buddy. Well, welcome to Faith Promise Church this weekend. Wherever you may find yourself worshiping from, whether you're here with us at Pellissippi campus or maybe you're uh, watching online or maybe at our God Behind Bars campus, wherever you are, we are honored that you are here and we're excited about what God is going to do in our midst. And so we've been in this series called Holy Land and we've taken a journey together with uh, Micah first and going on this trip with David and Goliath, and then last week ending at Mount Carmel with uh, Pastor Chris, uh, dealing with Elijah and the fire that fell from heaven. Now I just want to stop and say a huge, huge, don't we have an incredible senior pastor and Pastor Chris uh, and, and Pastor Michelle, unbelievable leaders here at our church and the opportunity we have to get to speak this weekend because of that generosity that they would open up the stage. Pray for them as they're away at conference that God would uh, refresh them, re would revive their spirit and bring them back more than ever on fire for, for us and for what God has for us here in East Tennessee. Amen. Can we agree on that together? This weekend, we're going to move to a new location and we're actually going to be talking about Pentecost. Now, Pentecost uh, is something that in Scripture, I think a lot of times we get a little bit uh, scary talking about that. Some of you are already starting to pucker up going, hold on, we ain't Pentecostal. Hold up now. We, you know, you know, we're, we're non-denominational. We got some Southern Baptists flowing in our blood here. So don't get too crazy on us this weekend. And so Pentecost sometimes gets overlooked and moved past and other things in Scripture take forefront. But Pentecost is not some strange thing. It's actually a really cool story and uh, experience in Scripture that happens. And the word Pentecost literally means the 50th day after Easter. So it's basically 50 days after Easter, this occurrence happens that changes humanity and changes Christianity and the explosive growth of the church in the early uh, uh, century as the uh, Christians we're there. And so it's literally 50 days after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And so the apostles who had experienced Jesus, been around Jesus, were all gathered together. And they were celebrating what was called the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of Weeks is simply one, one of the uh, uh, feasts in the uh, Jewish tradition 
that uh, they would gather together and they would celebrate. And it was a celebration of the end of the harvest time. And it was one of the feasts that required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, that's important for us later on as we start unpacking this story a little bit uh, more. But prior to the destruction of the temple, all people of the Jewish faith who were scattered all over the ends of the known world at that time would come back for the feast um, of weeks and they would bring a grain offering. They would bring their offering to the temple and there would be this big celebration in Jerusalem. And so the disciples are gathered together and they're getting ready to celebrate the feast of weeks when Pentecost breaks out in the upper room with the disciples. Now it's incredible. It's an incredible story for them. Now, there's 50 days in between Jesus being resurrected and Pentecost. For the first 40 days, what Scripture shows us and what uh, historians of the day tell us happened is Jesus is appearing in a variety of different ways to the apostles, and he's teaching them, preparing them for what ministry is going to look like without him physically being here on earth any longer. And so he's preparing them, he's getting them ready. And on the 40th day, Jesus takes the disciples up onto the Mount of Olives and he, he gives them instruction and he tells them, listen, you are to go until the ends of the earth. You know this passage. You go to the ends of the earth, you know, Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You're to take the gospel. You're to tell people about Jesus and you're to baptize them in my name, teaching them to follow everything that I have commanded you, right? And he says, and I'm going to give you a helper. I'm not going to leave you by yourself to do this. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal, guys. Go back to Jerusalem. I'm about to ascend to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And you go back to the upper room in Jerusalem and you wait and my helper will come. And so this is where we find the disciples and the apostles. It's not just the 12 that we know in Scripture. It's about 120 people, all Christians in the early church, who have gathered together in the upper room. And they're waiting like Jesus told them. If you've got your Bibles or something to read with, let's see what happens in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. When Pentecost happens. Acts chapter 2 verse uh, 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Now I think it's interesting that you see throughout Scripture there's this theme of unity in the New Testament of unity, and it's amazing that what we find the disciples on the day of Pentecost is there is this intense unity of them there, but even after Pentecost happens and as the church explodes and grows, there's this intense unity, and I believe that unity is one of the reasons why revival breaks out in our lives, and it's a wonder, and if revival is not happening, if God is not moving in radical ways in our midst, the question becomes, are we unified as a body of believers? Is the church of God unified? Because when there's unity among us, Jesus said, that's a marker that you are mine. There is unity by the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, as they're gathered and there's unity in that place, verse 2, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. Now, a supernatural event happens right here in this moment. All of a sudden, two, two supernatural things happen and break out in this moment. Number one, there is this, this violent rushing wind that comes into the upper room where they are gathered. 
This violent wind. Now, in Scripture and as Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, very often Jesus would refer to the Holy Spirit as a gentle breeze. A gentle wind. And so this is a metaphorical, uh, or it's, it's no, no wonder that when the Holy Spirit falls and invades the lives of humanity for the first time, it's in the form of a wind. But this is not a gentle wind, Scripture tells us. It's a violent wind. It's a powerful wind. And it signifies the weight and the power of what's happening in this moment. But not only that, there are these tongues of fire. Throughout the Old Testament, as Scripture refers to God, very often it refers to God as fire. It uses this metaphor of fire, this holy, uh, 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 this holy all-consuming fire that consumes, uh, that, that this fiery purity that consumes everything that is not pure. And so it's no wonder that fire represents God in this moment. And it is, it is giving us this picture of this is this moment, this supernatural moment, where God invades our lives through the Holy Spirit. And they break out speaking in different languages, not on their own ability, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave them the ability to begin to speak in other languages. And here's why that is important as we move on. Verse 5. Now there were Jews saying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred and the crowd came together... And was confused, a crowd came together and was and confused because each of them heard speaking in their own language. Now, what did we just say? The Feast of Weeks was a pilgrimage to Jerusalem that all Jews from all over the world who speak all different languages are coming together. There are thousands of Jews in Jerusalem who have got a front row seat to God breaking out revival in his church. They could hear in their language. There were all these different languages going on, and they heard in their own language. And they, they, they said, look, they were astonished and amazed, saying, look, aren't these all Galileans? They don't know our language. They don't know how to speak our language. And yet they're speaking, and we understand it was a supernatural moment. Now, what were they saying? They were prophesying. They were talking about the majesty of God, who he is and what he had done. And all these Jews were hearing the gospel in their own language. Incredible, incredible moment. In that, in that time, when this wind breaks out and the upper room is right by the temple, the wind breaks out. It would gather everyone's attention. They would have heard over 100 people speaking in different languages, talking about who God is. It would have gathered the crowd's attention, and the, uh, the crowds would have made their way towards the upper room to see what was going on. And now, all of a sudden, God has everyone captive. Thousands of expectant Jews awaiting their Savior, front row, ready to hear the gospel. A powerful move. You know, I just got to think that the disciples were sitting there going, isn't this an amazing picture of the sovereignty of God? Because if I were a disciple, I would say, hey, send your Holy Spirit right now on the Mount of Olives. I want the Holy Spirit now. But Jesus says, go wait. And I'm not going to tell you how long you're going to wait because there's a perfect time coming on the Feast of Weeks. 
Well, I will show off in a way that nobody dreamed possible. And what do we know happens at the end? At the end of this experience together, right? Peter stands up and Peter preaches the gospel. And thousands of Jews turn their hearts to Jesus and give their hearts and lives to him and respond to the gospel. And the church exploded. A supernatural move of God. Pentecost. One of the first huge moves of God, of revival here on earth. And for a lot of us, we will look and we will point back and Pentecost becomes the standard bearer of what revival looks like. That's what we go back and go, man, if that could just happen today. And I don't know about you, I've got my ideas of what revival looks like. You've probably got them too. Some of us got some crazy ideas of what revival looks like. We grew up, it's like a tent, right? And a crazy sweaty guy in a big suit comes up and spits all over the first five rows. And like Benny Hinn goes, let the body hits the floor and, you know, does this. And half the congregation falls out on the floor, you know, writhing. You know, it's like these, you know, miracles and long worship and healings and all this. We, We all have our ideas of what revival should look like. And Pentecost was simply revival. But what I want to challenge you with is that there's some facts you and I have to understand and believe about what true revival looks like if we ever want to experience it in our own life. And so this weekend, we're going to take a hard look at some facts about true revival so that we can experience it in our own lives. Is that okay? Is it okay with you guys? Let's do it. The first fact about true revival that we have to understand if we're ever going to experience it in our own life is this, is that only God can send true revival. Only God can bring revival in our life. You and I cannot create revival in our life. We, we, We can't schedule revival to happen in our life. We can't manipulate God, right? You can't manipulate God into revival and showing up in your life. Only God can bring revival. See, revival comes from the hand of God, not from, our, from the works of our hands. Revival comes from the hand of God, not from the works of our hands. And sometimes I think we believe that we can manipulate God into bringing revival into our life. Oh, if I just do these things, then God will show up and show out in my life in this incredible way, right? And it's not like that. It's kind of like when I was a kid, I, I, I was not always OCD from birth, right? There was a time period in my life where I wasn't OCD, and it was when I was a kid. Actually, my mom gets very mad when she comes to my house and sees how clean it is. She goes, you were not like that as a child. My house is destroyed forever because of you as a child. But I always knew that if I ever want to get on my mom's good side, I could clean If I ever wanted something from my mom, I could clean my room. And if I wanted something big for my mom, I could clean the whole house. Or if I I knew I was going to get in trouble for something, go ahead and just clean the whole house. And I could could work that grace a little bit, right? And we have this mindset that we can do that with God. That we can manipulate God into things with our works and with our hands. But listen to what Psalm 85, 17 says. It's coming up here on the screen. We got that? Here we go. We'll fly right here to Psalm 85.6. Will you not revive us again, O Lord? Will you not revive us again? Who is the one reviving? 
God. It didn't say, hey, we can do it for ourselves. It's, it's crying out. The psalmist is crying out and asking God to bring revival in their life because only God can bring true revival in our life. We see this throughout Scripture. And if you and I want to experience revival in our own life, we have to understand that fact at the core. Why? So that we don't waste our time on things that will never lead us to revival. So that we don't end up looking like the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, cutting themselves and crying out and yelling as loud as they can, trying to get their gods to answer. Because you can't manipulate God. Only God can bring revival when he desires to. The second fact about revival that we have to understand if we want to experience in our life is, is this, is that we can posture ourselves for revival. Our posture can usher revival into our lives. What does that mean, Matt? You just said that only God can bring revival. Yes, only God can bring revival. But there are certain postures, there are certain attitudes, there are, are, are certain things we can do in our life that can put us into a position where we are more likely to experience revival in our life. What are those? Well, one is confession, a posture of confession. Confession simply means coming before God, acknowledging who God is and who we are and our need for God. Confession is not just about sin, although that's a part of it. Confession is about acknowledging who God is, who we are, and our need for God. Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent. And be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, confess, acknowledge who God is, who you are, and your need for him, and move towards him. And as you and I make it a habit of confessing in our life, we elevate God above everything else. We elevate God above ourself. We elevate God above the world around us. And when we elevate God above everything else, we begin to experience God in new ways that we never thought possible. Another posture that can put us in a place where we experience revival is to imbibe in God's word. Now you say, whoa, whoa what's that? Well, you've been in Blount County way too long. They don't know those kind of words out there right there. All right, listen, a posture of imbibing God's word. Imbibing simply means this, to consume or to digest. Now, I had an opportunity. I could have very easily said, just read God's word. But I don't know about you. There are days that I just read God's word and nothing happens, right? Anybody else out there with me? Like every day. But when I imbibe on God's word, it transforms who I am. When I consume God's word, it transforms who I am. When I digest God's word, when it's not just simply my eyes reading words off a page, but it's me allowing the word of God to become who I am. It changes me. My daughter is the, the, the greatest example of this. She's a Disney freak. Every year we say we're not going back to Disney World and somehow we wind back there again, right? And she loves Disney movies. At the movies, she's going to lose her mind, right? Because she is a Disney freak. And every time a new movie comes out, Thanks to Mimi, she goes and watches it because I'm not paying $10 a ticket to go and $18 for popcorn and drinks and all that, right? And so like Beauty and the Beast just came out. She went to see it and then she talks about how awesome it is until Mimi goes and buys the DVD for her whenever it comes out, right? And then she will 
binge watch the DVD until she knows every line, every song by heart. I mean, she, I mean, she has the entire movie memorized. And that's how you and I should be with the Word of God. See, when I watch movies, I'm just watching it. Hey, that was a good one. I move on and I forget everything about it. She doesn't. She's consumed it. She's digested it. And that's what, it, that's what God is calling us to do with the word of God. You hear Jesus whenever uh, he speaks in uh, the desert when he is being tempted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus says, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are to live, we are to feast on the word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 119.11 says, I have treasured your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Some translations say, I have hidden your word in my heart. It's this, this is this idea of consuming, of, of digesting, of hiding into our life. It's not just something we read, but it's something we become. And when we consume the word of God, as the disciples did in Acts chapter 2, as they gathered together in the upper room and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, as it says in verse 42. The power of God is unleashed in ways that we can never do on our own. When we take a posture of inviting on the word of God. We can also posture ourselves with a third posture and that is a posture of prayer. See, prayer is not just coming before God with your laundry list of things, God, you need to do in my life so that my life feels good. Prayer is coming before God, yes, to express those things, but it's coming before God in submission, allowing him to shape and mold us into who he wants us to be. And time and time again in Scripture, when the people of God humble themselves in prayer, God moves. And so it's a fact. Only God can bring revival in our lives. But it's also a fact that there are things that you and I should do. There are postures that you and I can take that can put us into a place that God can move on our life. There's a third fact about revival that we have to get if we're going to experience revival in our life. And it is this, is that revival is more than just about an experience, it's about restoration. Revival is more than just an experience, it's about restoration. And for so many of us, here's our idea of revival. It's, you know, long worship times, right? It's, you know, worship for three or four hours and someone preaching and going on and people getting healed and supernatural things happening. And yes, all of those things can happen in revival. There is emotion and there is an experience. If you don't think so, go back and look what happened in the upper room. If a violent wind broke out in here right now and tongues of fire fell on everybody, that'd be an experience unlike any of us have ever had, right? It is an experience, but it's more than just that. Look at the word revival. It's two words, re meaning again, and vival meaning life. When you combine those together, it simply means this, to bring one back to life again or to restore to a previous condition. Why would God define revival as restoring someone to a previous condition? Here's why. After the fall, in the Garden of Eden, the purpose of man was distorted by sin. 
Genesis 1.27 gives us a very clear understanding of what our purpose is as man and woman here on earth. So God created a man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. You're going, Matt, you got the wrong scripture up there. No, I didn't. If you take in the image of God, it doesn't mean the image of God. You translate it literally, it says the image bearers of God. So when God created you and God created me in the Garden of Eden, we were created to be the image bearers of God who walk in perfect unity and connection with God. That was our design. That is our purpose. But when Adam and Eve chose to sin, that was distorted. Our purpose was distorted. It was marred by our sin. And it destroyed this state. But throughout the Old Testament, God continues to say that the only God-authorized, God-sanctioned image of me is mankind. That is why God forbids there to be any pictures painted of him. There should be no portraits created of him. There should be no idol or image that is crafted or carved of God. Why? Because the only image to represent God that he wants is you and me. That's it. We don't need another image. It's our responsibility to represent that. And so at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, as the apostles are gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit falls on them and invades their life, God restored you and me to that original Genesis 1 verse 27 state. His image bearers who can now walk in perfect unity and connection with God through the Holy Spirit. Do you see that right there? That's you and that's me. That is revival restoring us to that state. Revival is awakening you and me to that reality. And for some of you, the light bulb is going off. I never thought about that. I never recognized that. That is what revival is. It's not about some crazy wild emotion. It's about your heart being roused to the reality that you are the image bearer of God empowered through the Holy Spirit to represent him here on earth. And Jesus knew that. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 12, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and he will do even greater works than these. You and I, Jesus says, will do even greater works than Jesus did when he was here on earth. Jesus says, my healings were great. My miracles were great. My teaching was great. But you will do even greater things as my church through the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but when I look at the church, I have to wonder, either the church is missing it or Jesus was a liar. Because I wonder where that move is. I wonder where that power is. I wonder where those miracles are, where that authority is that Jesus had. Jesus said we would have it. And is it because you and I have become numb to who God created us to be? And what we desperately need the Spirit of God to do is awaken us and arouse our hearts to see that we are his image bearers who on the day of Pentecost, God restored us to perfect relationship with him, to be his image bearers here on earth.
And so my prayer for us this weekend across all of our campuses is that we would experience true revival. Not some alternative form, but true revival that comes from the hand of God when you and I choose to posture ourselves in confession, in biming on the word of God, in prayer. And that as we do, God unleashes revival, restoring us to our true identity as his image bearers here on earth empowered through the Holy Spirit to do even greater things than he did when he walked this earth. God, I pray for every person sitting here. I pray for every person listening right now on their computer. I pray for every inmate sitting in a God behind bars location who is hearing this message that we would not miss what you are calling us to, that we are your image bearers. That on the day of Pentecost, you revived us once and for all through true revival to be your image bearers, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to walk in perfect relationship with you through the Holy Spirit. That we would be your hands and your feet here on earth, that we would bear your image to the places that we go in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, Father, in our schools that we go into, on our ball teams, wherever we may find ourselves, that we would carry you and we would shine a picture so bright and so vivid of you that the world can't help but fall on their knees with their hands out for the gospel. Would you revive us as only you can, Father? Revive our hearts. Restore us to who you designed us to be. For it's your name we pray. Amen. For some of you this weekend as we talk, you, you, you hear all this and you go, man, it, it's impossible to revive me because I've never once turned my heart to Jesus. I've never asked him to be my savior. And if that's you, I would love nothing more than to lead you to acknowledge Christ as your savior because over 2,000 years ago, here, here's what we know. As Jesus crawled up on a cross, he paid the price for your sin and my sin. And no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how ugly our lives may look, there is grace and forgiveness in the hands of our Savior. And he would love nothing more than give you a fresh start and to walk alongside you as your Savior. If you're ready for that, with every head bowed, every eye closed, let's pray with them. Just pray this. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for paying the price for my sin. I give you my life. Ask you to forgive me. Come into my life. Lead me and guide me as I strive to live for you. To bear your image to the world around me. If it's your name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that in just a few moments, fill out that communication card in the seat back pocket in front of you and check that box that says today I prayed to receive Christ. When we're done, some staff and prayer team will be down front. You can bring that down or take it out to the Next Steps area and they would love to follow up with you on that decision you've made. Well, in a couple of weeks, At The Movies is gonna be here. You don't wanna miss it. It's gonna be incredible. There are invite cards all over the place here. Grab them, some in your seats. There are stations out in the lobby. Watch this and we're dismissed as soon as this is over with.